Hey there, listener. Do you have something to say? Then you're already a podcaster. You just don't know it yet. Whether you love to shoot the breeze with friends, have an urge to share your passions with the world, or even want to grow your business, you've got something worth saying with a podcast. With Acast, it couldn't be easier to start your own show. Launch, grow, and make money from your podcast across all listening platforms. If you have something to say, you're a podcaster. Head over to Acast.com to get started for free. Hey, this is Andrew Thien, podcast editor for The Oregonian and Oregon Live and host of Beat Check with The Oregonian. I took a week off to recharge. My colleague, newsletters, and special projects editor Amy Wong handled the show this week. Amy spoke with reporter Fedor Zarhin about some of his recent work. They talked about the war in Ukraine and how it's affecting the tens of thousands of residents in the Portland metro area who hail from Ukraine and Russia. Here's their conversation. Fedor, thanks so much for joining us today. You're usually our healthcare reporter with a focus on COVID coverage over the past couple of years, but recently you switched over to some coverage of the Ukraine situation. Can you tell us uh, how that came to be? So for the last two years or so, I've been covering COVID primarily. And since the war started a month ago, almost exactly a month ago, I've transitioned to writing a little bit about the impact here of the war on the Ukrainian community, primarily because uh, I have some ties. I don't speak Ukrainian, but I speak Russian, and I've lived in Ukraine. I uh, traveled there, I vacationed there, um, so it seemed like a natural fit, uh, especially because I also have some familiarity with the community here. Yeah, I was looking at your most recent story in which you wrote that Oregon is home to some 9,000 people who were born in Ukraine and more than 20,000 people who claim some Ukrainian ancestry. Do Ukrainians come to Oregon for specific reasons or do they end up here more by chance? So I think the Northwest has a, in general, of course, a very interesting history, but the history of Slavic migration to this area is um, complicated and interesting and goes back uh, several centuries, but we're not going to go back that far. I think a lot of what explains the uh, abundance of people from Ukraine in the Portland area is a a lot of it's attributed to um, essentially at the end of when the Soviet Union was uh, in its its last years uh, and in the early 90s, essentially the immigration policy in the Soviet Union was changed in uh, 1990, I believe. And also the United States created this refugee program uh, for some specific religious uh, refugees. So people from Ukraine who were uh, Baptist or Pentecostal in large numbers came here to Oregon um, because throughout the Soviet Union, you know, an atheist, an officially atheist state, there was some persecution of these religious minorities. Um, And the reason they came to Oregon specifically, you know, of course, I don't know for sure, but my understanding is that um, like the land, the, 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 the landscape is similar. There's uh, good farming land, so a lot of the same stuff that can be grown back home could be grown here. And then there is also already the history of Slavic 
migration here. So, you know, if you're going to a new country, think about going to a place where you might know someone already. And I think that that's the other component that explains why um, Oregon has a very sizable Russian-speaking population and a sizable Ukrainian population where there's a lot of overlap. Uh, because, just like I said, you know, you if you're thinking about where to move in a new country where you don't speak the language, you might want to consider going to where you have family or friends. And then at some point, I think there's enough of a critical mass where it almost doesn't matter why people originally came because people are going to keep coming and coming and, and coming. So are there, speaking of which, are there certain parts of the Portland area or Oregon or the Pacific Northwest where Ukrainians and or Russians tend to settle? One interesting group, that, not not Ukrainians, uh, called Old Believers, many people who settled near Woodburn. Um, that's a different wave of migration from the one I was, I was talking about. That's also people escaping religious uh, persecution. Then I think in uh, eastern Portland, uh, there's a lot of folks. But honestly, you know, just like people live everywhere, so do Slavic people live everywhere. You know, you're going to find a lot of people in Beaverton who, say, work for Intel, for example, you know. Uh, so it's, it's really not uh, uniform. And uh, you'll, you can find these little Russian-speaking uh, Slavic grocery stores kind of across, across the city, you know, out west Beaverton, east past, you know, 122nd. So there's, uh, and, you know, if those stores are there, that means there's, there's demand. Again, I also want to make sure, like, there's, there's overlap, right? Russian-speaking and Ukrainian, there's overlap. It doesn't mean it's the same, the same people, of course. But there, as far as I know, are not going to be, say, grocery stores catering specifically to Ukrainian people and not Russian people because of the amount of overlap, right? And, and you know, and that, that also speaks to the complexity of the conflict, of course, as you can, as you can imagine. You know, you and I were talking a bit last week about overlap, uh, such as folks who are ethnic Russians living in Ukraine. Um, without getting too far into the weeds, would you be able to give just a quick primer on the overlap and the distinctions and the commonalities between Russians and Ukrainians? Uh, you know, I still sometimes feel like I can't quite understand because so there's my own personal experience that really uh, feeds a lot of my understanding. So I, I lived and worked in eastern Ukraine and people there are Ukrainian, right? They're proud of being Ukrainian. You know, they sing the Ukrainian national anthem. They have the Ukrainian flag. But everybody speaks in Russian, like the de facto, the, the normal language, the first language that they will speak is Russian. So does that make them Russian? I mean, not really, right? It is, but it is the language that they're born with and that they speak with. And a lot of the culture, of course, also overlaps. I mean, if you take like the literature, you know, the music, the history, the, uh, the architecture, like there's a lot of common history. And that's why Russian people and Ukrainian people uh, have historically seen each other as um, like brotherly nations. Uh, you know, I have, like, both of my grandmothers were born in Ukraine, for example, right? But I was born in Russia, and so were my parents, and so were you know, my other uh, 
grandparents, right? So even just in a random person like me, there's that kind of overlap. And I've been there very many times. Uh, I've been to Crimea multiple times, first time when I was like five or six. I mean, just if you're a Russian person growing up, you, you see this as like almost like an artificial barrier separation mm -hmm. because of how many pe Russian people there are living in Ukraine and vice versa. But like over the last 10, 15, 20, uh, 30 years, I guess, that's really been uh, changing with this, you know, as we know, this, this big conflict where uh, Russia wants Ukraine to be more under its influence and the, uh, the, the majority powers uh, in Ukraine, and I think the most vocal groups in Ukraine, want the country to be more Western aligned. You know, and so uh, for a big country like Russia, that is seen as a threat. And so whatever divisions have historically existed uh, between the two cultures are now going to be amplified you know, to the stratosphere where we can't really see it as like brotherly nations. It should, I should also be very clear that like what I'm describing is based on, you know, like on my experience, right? If you go farther west in Ukraine, a lot, like people are going to be speaking Ukrainian as their first language. They'll understand Russian and they'll be perfectly able to speak it. But if I speak to them in Russian, they will respond to me in Ukrainian. Like that, that was my experience. Like if I travel to West Ukraine, I speak in Russian, they respond to me in Ukrainian. And, you know, we figure it out. I don't speak Ukrainian, but we can, we, we, we can understand each other. So given those overlaps and some of those commonalities, how do you see in your reporting and in your uh, conversations with people, how is the conflict affecting Ukrainians and Russians here in Oregon? Ukrainians, I think, and Russians, there's... Of course, I can't, I can't speak on speak for everyone, but what I would expect very many people feel, of course, is utter disbelief. Like, like, like I feel like this is some sort of dream. You know, it doesn't feel real, and I, other people have expressed the exact same feeling. I mean, it, it, you know, imagine if, if Seattle's being bombed, right? And Minneapolis and Chicago is surrounded and thousands of people, corpses, like thousands of people are dead and the people invading are like Canadians and there's literally like bombs falling and people dying. It's absolutely incomprehensible. Like the brain does not, cannot fathom it. So for the folks here, it's like they're, they've got their loved ones there and they don't know if tomorrow they will speak to them. You know, uh, so of course it's absolutely un, un, unfathomable and incomprehensible. It's 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 like a nightmare. It's like some sick, sick dream that is not ending. You know, and of course people are trying to do what they can to have some sense of agency. Like with everyone I've talked to, the first few days are just sleepless. Like the first few days and nights when the war started. Uh, people uh, just uh, are glued to their phones, connecting with people, watching the news, can't even begin to process. Then something breaks because the body can't handle 
all of that and then people kind of start coming together and trying to figure out what exactly they can do and I know a lot of people here in, in the Portland area have come together you know there's there's people who are flying to Poland with suitcases upon suitcases of like tourniquets to then to, to, to then hand over to someone who's going to go into Ukraine there's this march uh, along uh, 205 every Saturday um, there's a Ukrainian Orthodox Church where they make vareniki. Um, uh, it's like a Ukrainian version of, pir of a pierogi that they sell. What's interesting will be continue to be interesting to see is like it's been a month, right? How do people get quote unquote like used to that? You know, like I, I feel bad almost for the families where people who feel guilty to take a break, they but at some point you've got to go and like go to Mount Hood for a hike. You know, go skiing, do something. Like, but I know people feel some uh, guilt, like they're not allowed to relax while their country's being bombed. But then on the other hand, like, what's what's the benefit exactly of that for them? So it's it's difficult. Right. It's it's like when they say on the airplane that you need to put on your own oxygen mask first, so you become can still be useful to other people. What you mentioned tourniquets, um, what are some of the specific needs that folks here are trying to fulfill for their family and friends over in Ukraine? A lot of the supplies that, that I know are um, being sent over are things to help like in the field. You know, like if someone has been hit and could die of blood loss, for there to be something to help staunch that flow and potentially save their life medications, bandages, any number of uh, items of, along those lines. I think another thing that people here are doing is, uh, of course, collecting you know, money and trying to send that over for whatever needs there are on the ground. And also, you know, I was talking to a family, uh, to a lady here who's been working for several weeks, uh, making endless phone calls to embassies, uh, doing a lot of research, uh, in trying to help, trying to get visas for um, her family, uh, for most of her family who is in Poland right now to get them over here to the United States and is, she's preparing her home right now to accept her nephew and niece, uh, getting a bed tomorrow to put into her son's bedroom because the three of them are going to be together. Um, so as an example of the kind of thing that, that people are, people are trying, uh, people are trying to do. Well, the, yeah, the Biden administration has said that it will admit as many as a hundred thousand people to the United States out of the 3.5 million or so who have left Ukraine since the Russian invasion. What is the likelihood that we'll see some of those people here in Oregon? So in terms of the, the bureaucracy, I have zero familiarity with the, in terms of how they decide where people will go. But I think the likelihood that people will come here is uh, 100%. I mean, there's already people here in Portland, from what, from what I understand, who have uh, escaped Ukraine. Not everyone here is necessarily on a refugee status that can take a very long time even if it's expedited 
but you know, someone who gets a tourist visa right now, um, say, take, takes a, gets an interview in, in Poland oh, in a U.S. embassy, and the U.S. official asks, so what are you going to do? You know, they might say, hey, I'm going to just, you know, want to check out Niagara Falls. There's nothing to do with any war, you know. Uh, I, I don't know to what extent that that's necessarily happening, but people know they need to get in here, get leave uh, that area somehow, and come to be with relatives here. And you know, at the beginning of the conversation, we were saying that there's a lot of there's that critical mass where if you're going to go to a country, you go to where you know people and where you have relatives. Well, for that very reason, you know, there's going to be people. Um, people here. I also, you know, talked to several people who are crossing the Mexico border right now to come up here to live with, to stay with relatives in Portland, for example, or people coming here on existing tourist visas or people getting new tourist visas. Of course, the future for everyone is is unclear. The administration <clears throat> earlier this month uh, created this uh, temporary status for Ukrainians in the United States on uh, visas or who or, or undocumented that allows them to stay for 18 months uh, without having to, to leave but that's only for individuals who are who were already here March 1st so that doesn't apply to someone who comes with say a tourist visa tomorrow and of course, everything is really fluid, right? I don't know, maybe tomorrow it will be completely impossible to get a visa, period, and people will have to wait for a many months long process to get uh, refugee status. We also don't know who is being uh, let in at the Mexico border. Um, you know, I read in the time, in the New York Times, that it's essentially there's an exception provided to Ukrainian people where they could enter the United States for one year. According to the New York Times, it was for individuals who had family or had somewhere to stay. But, you know, at this point, it's almost like at the, the information is at the level of reliability of like, rumors, you know, because I, at this point, haven't seen any official proclamation, understandably, because the U.S. government doesn't want, presumably doesn't want the entire uh, Ukrainian uh, refugee population in Eastern Europe to fly into Mexico. You know, presumably that's not the desired effect. So people are trying to figure all of this out in real time. You, you know, like as I'm reporting this, I have you know, people texting me, asking me, hey, like, what do I do? How do I, like, how do I get into the U.S.? Like, how do I help my friend get into the U.S.? Like, is the Mexico option, is that like a real option? Uh, are tourist visas still available? You know, so this is all very much um, a very immediate thing right now that very many people are trying to decipher. Yeah, as you said, you know, it's just fluid and ever-changing. And earlier in our conversation, you talked about how people have been glued to their phones looking for updates. I, I want to go to the story that you wrote about Ukrainians here, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. But in that story, speaking of news, you interviewed one woman who had a friend who was watching Russian state news sources and was getting a skewed perspective on the invasion. Where are Ukrainians in Oregon turning for their news updates? What, are, what do they consider reliable sources? So reliable sources, I think, I think the key distinction is like, like 
Russian sources right now, Russian official sources are, uh, like if there's a spectrum of reliability, uh, Russian news sources right now are off the deep end of not reliable, right? Like things are being portrayed so completely differently that it's, it's like a hall of mirrors universe that ha that is disconnected from reality is is my understanding so uh it, you, ukrainians from my understanding there's a lot of information sharing actually like from first-hand accounts in uh in ukraine there's telegram of course is very popular that's actually a source that people in russia have to, to it's an app that's used just for regular communication, but also a lot of uh, news sources and semi-official news sources um, on on that app, and just regular old Western Western news sources. Also, people find pretty reliable. You know, the, there's a lot of reporters there on on the ground. Uh, you know, like there's this Ukrainian or, organization called Unyan. You know, there's the Kiev Independent, uh, you know, lots of folks down there who people um, who people follow, and with Russian news, I mean, it is a really disastrous, tragic, like really, like this is, you know, from from where I stand at least, the other big tragedy of the situation is, uh, well, one of the other big tragedies of the situation is what's happening to um, freedom of speech um in in russia and how that media landscape is turning into something ungodly well if people here want to learn more about ukraine uh not only in terms of current events but in terms of the history and the past conflicts with russia how would you recommend that they go about that Oh man, you know that's a tough one because it is complicated and it is emotional. And one of the reasons it's complicated is because even the 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 most blatant propaganda can have a little bit of truth in it, right? Can be based on some article of truth. And part of the effect of that is that pollutes that little article of truth and makes it toxic. Okay, so what that means is that it's difficult to talk about any of the. Um, it, it makes it just more, more difficult to talk to, and it means that there's so many different realities and perspectives. Like earlier on, I was telling you about my perspective on the overlap in culture and language, and I am very confident that there are many people who, if they heard that, they'd be like, "No, that's not Ukraine." That's not what it's like, you know, and and that would be true for other people. That that's kind of the the reality there um, right now. As I'm trying to understand, for example, this conflict, I'm trying to turn to things like honestly, like the Rand Corporation, for example, for at least for me personally, has been uh, an an important source because uh, so. Because these sort of these outside organizations, they're trying to um, equanimically, dispassionately analyze the recent history of how things have played out uh, uh, without that much emotion, right? So that's been uh, that's been very helpful. Another thing is 
you know, to, to, to try to learn the, the history of this area, it's, it, it, again, it's not just about learning the history of Ukraine. It's like learning the whole history of, of all of it, right? Again, because of how intertwined Russian, Soviet, and Ukrainian uh, history are. So my answer would be good luck. Tell me how you figure it out, because there's lots and lots to read. I guess the, the one other thing I'd say is it's important to remember that it's complicated, right? That it's just plain complicated, which, which is almost unfortunate, right? Like, that makes it harder. Right, and I want to go back real quickly to what you were saying earlier about the varied experiences and just point out, I just was, I was just looking it up. This is a country with a population of 44, some 44 million people. And it's also a geographically vast country. Uh, it's the second largest on the continent after Russia, if I'm not mistaken. And so that would necessarily, inevitably, lead to a wide variety of experiences, you know, like where you were saying, here's my experience, but it's not necessarily representative for other people. Yeah, and I think that that's particularly important when it comes to comes to language. Something like a third of the country speaks Russian natively, or a substantial chunk. It's like their native language, the language they're born with. But right now, speaking Russian is kind of a faux pas, you know? When I was reporting on some of this, I would call some folks who are Ukrainian, and I start talking to them in Russian, and there's this, like, uh, I'm not sure I like that kind of sense. So there are people right now who I speak with them in English, even though we both speak Russian, because for them, the Russian language is offensive. Like, it's the language of the invader. And yet, millions of their countrymen, that is their native language, right? So it's complicated. But again, like language does not mean identity because many, many, many of these native Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine have very much banded together against the Russian forces. Just like I remember this, this one, um, one memory uh, teaching. So I, I taught English in, in Ukraine in, in one city that is now called Dnipro. At the time it was called Dnipropetrovsk. Uh, and... Uh, all my students, when whenever we they were supposed to be speaking English all the time, but they weren't always speaking English. They would sp if they weren't speaking English, they were speaking Russian. And I remember, there's this one student who, as a matter of principle, only spoke Ukrainian. You know that was, and it was sort of like a thing. It was like, oh, she, you know, she's she only speaks Ukrainian. You know, everybody's kind of like, oh, okay, but that's not something you would find in Western Ukraine. I, I would be shocked if you would find a situation like that in in Western Ukraine. And then, you know, like yesterday we were talking about that TV show, Zelensky's TV show, Servant of the of the People. Like some of his other shows before he was president. Like, you know, if I'm kind of tired after work, you know, open YouTube and find, you know, like he had some funny shows. Uh, so he was a funny guy, right? Uh, it was in Russian, and I found it entertaining. It was a good little, it was a good laugh. So, again, speaking of that, that overlap, but I think a lot of what's going on right now, of course, is uh, there's more of this, you know, where, like, that lady who's refusing to speak Russian is only speaking in, in Ukrainian. Uh, 
uh, there's there's more of that, and perfectly understandably, and you know, more power to them because this uh, because the Russian government has obviously been using those divisions to claim that the Russian-speaking population is being persecuted and that that warrants this war, and that's just absolutely just outside the scope of my understanding. It's, it's just absolutely unfathomable. Well, Fedor, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, the only other question I had is I was wondering, there's been just an upswelling of people wanting to support Ukrainians uh, here, both in the Portland area and over in Ukraine. Are you aware of any, you know, particularly good place where people can direct their support here? I think a good place to start would be this Facebook group called Ukrainians in Oregon. And there's a lot of uh, resources there that's pretty active. Uh, there's like the, the people who are doing the activism are there and you can look at the rallies and the fundraising opportunities. Um, also, uh, we wrote a story, Lizzie Acker wrote a story about um, how Oregonians can help. Uh, one of the churches I mentioned, the Orthodox Church, is accepting financial donations, which are going to people affected by by the invasion. Um, you know, there's rallies. I'm I'm sure people would appreciate people attend, continuing to attend in support of Ukraine because you know it's been a month, right? So we know the general attention span of things. Uh, I think people appreciate. The more attention, kind of, the better. I'm sure is the perspective. So yeah, there's there's plenty if you look for them. Thank you so much for your time today, Fedor. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with your Oregonian. We shared links to Fedor's stories in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show and tell a friend. Help spread the word. If you value our journalism, the best way to show it is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time, 